We have in front of here Alex Conway, Adrian Rowan, and they're going to talk to us about another application, I guess, of data science, machine learning, which is augmented reality in the insurance space. So without further ado, guys, welcome. Let's give them a round of applause. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Adrian. Uh, good morning. I'm Alex, and we're from NumberBoost, a machine learning startup that builds custom computer vision and predictive modeling solutions and, and the kind of thing that we're going to show you today. Um, um, we wanted to show you a live we wanted to show you a live demo of our augmented reality solution um, on a car. But unfortunately technology has failed us in this case. So um, we're gonna be around afterwards. So please do come and see us and we'll show you a live demo of how the augmented reality works. But in the meantime, we're gonna show you a few videos that illustrates the, um, the same case. Okay, so Yes, please find us today. We're really excited to do this. I always find it funny when people worry about AI taking over the world and we can't even get like our laptops to do a presentation in front of all you people. <laughs> so please do come and find us. We're really excited to show it to you. Um, in the meantime, we'll, we'll show you some videos. So we're gonna start with augmented reality dent and scratch detection. And this is some work that we did last year that led to us winning a startup competition with Mercedes-Benz. And we built a system for uh, inspectors in dealerships to use to do inspections of uh, used cars and cars that are being leased, where they first take a photo of the license disc on a car. Uh, from that, we extract the, the VIN number and, and details of the car. Um, maybe, AV guys, if we could just exit the, the full screen, the, the same issue we had earlier, and just play it. Yeah, I think it'll be better. Maybe make that full screen, and then it'll be less painful. Um, and so the inspector then uses this app that has this model built into it to walk around the car and take photos of various parts of the car. So th there's a close-up showing taking a photo of some damage on a fender. But, and if we can go to the, the next slide. But the process is the inspector walks around the car and takes 12 photos from every possible angle of the car. And we automatically identify any dents or scratches on the car using these photos to create a, a sort of computer vision powered condition profile. Um, we can go back full screen again from there and we'll, we'll talk through some of the details thereof. So here you can see how the pictures will look after you've taken a photo and the computer automatically and instantly draws the damage boxes around each. Now the application for insurance is quite obviously, I'm certain many of you have gone through the painful process of whenever you bumped your car, having to go to assessment center and first having to have somebody assess whether it's a new claim and if it's a valid claim before you can proceed with the claim process. And that takes a long time um, and sometimes there's lots of uncertainty around it. Now wouldn't it be better if you can just take a camera, the client takes a camera of the picture and immediately the damage that is um, that needs to be shown uh, is shown on the screen and you can tell the person immediately this, this damage is new and you can proceed with having it repaired. Now in order to do this you need three things. First you need lots of labeled data. Now Mercedes gave us hundreds and thousands of photos of damaged cars but that on its own isn't good enough. You need to have boxes drawn around every set of damage in this picture. So we're going to explain the process how to get that. Then once you've got labeled data, you need to fill it into an appropriate model, similar to the things that Louis mentioned, but we'll explain the special type of model that we use in this case. 
And then once you've got a model making predictions, you need to make, have a uh, process to make certain it's actually 100% accurate. Because anybody who promises you that this model can do 100% accuracy is lying to you. So the first part is how to get data. So I wonder who of you have heard of the Mechanical Turk? Ah, we've got one hand there. Um, it's actually um, the first version of machine learning and artificial intelligence that was ever developed. And this was in the 1700s. So imagine in the 1700s there was this big chessboard with a big mechanical guy made from um, uh, wood and metal that could play chess. And this chessboard uh, of a guy that looks like a Turk went across Europe and it played against Napoleon Bonaparte and it kept on beating everybody in chess and they couldn't understand how is this thing possible? I mean, this is 300 years ago. And the actual reason how it worked is that underneath there sat a very small guy who was very good at chess. And he would, <laughs> with magnets, see where all the chess boards were moved and underneath he would pull all the levers to move this hand and move things around. So that was like the first idea of how uh, artificial intelligence works. And so to apply that, if we go to the next slide, you actually, uh, Amazon now has a service that's called uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk. And it allows you to do the similar thing where you outsource uh, things that looks like artificial intelligence to this platform. So there's lots of applications where you upload your receipts and then suddenly everything is allocated in the right source and numbers are typed in. And it's actually just uploading this onto a service and people are actually typing it over for you. It's not a computer doing the... Um, doing the analysis. It just looks like uh, a computer doing everything. Now what is great for this is we could just upload all these images that we need to have boxes to the service and we had somebody else draw the boxes for us and that saves us lots of time in the labeling process because we need label data. Now what is quite funny, if you go to the next slide, it shows you have people, and this is the result, you, have, you show this to five people and they will draw boxes around and some of them won't draw the boxes in the right place, or won't bo draw boxes at all, but you take the average of say five drawn boxes and then you know that is where the damage is and that flows into your machine learning tool. Now just before I go further into the next slide, the funny thing is, is that you cannot as a South African go onto the mechanical platform. So we're actually outsourcing basic mechanical tasks to the US and paying in dollars for somebody to draw boxes around images. And it would actually be a great opportunity to have this functionality in South Africa and have overseas people pay us to draw boxes around that. But that's the topic of the next time. So next up, the modeling. Okay, so you've heard a lot of hype about neural networks and I'm sure you've seen some neural networks. Has anyone here used a neural network before in their work? Yeah, hands up. Just a couple, okay. Um, so neural networks look very scary and tangled. Really, it, it's just a function that has some input. So in this case, uh, the input would be an image. Uh, there would be all the pixels of the image. Um, and the output is, in this case, it would be a probability distribution over what's in that image. Is it a dent, is it a scratch, is it dirt, is it nothing? Now, that's a sort of standard vanilla feedforward neural network. And you can notice that every neuron in one layer is connected to every neuron in the next layer. Now, an image is, you know, it has, if you look in, like, think back to old TVs where you look really close and you can see the little pixel dots. Um, an image is really just a number of little pixels 
close together at high resolution. And so, um, it, and really those are three numbers. It's a red, red number, a blue number, and a green number. And so an image is really just a set of numbers. It's width times height times three color channels numbers. So if you have a 500 by 500 pixel image, that's 750,000 numbers as your inputs on the input layer. So you have 750,000 neurons. And you, you hear about neural networks, but the real rage these days is deep learning. And deep learning is breaking the state of the art in all kinds of interesting problems. Uh, and we use a, a deep neural network for what we're going to show you today. Um, but if you look at a, a neural network like that and imagine having 750,000 neurons in the input layer, and then a deep neural network is really just a neural network with more than three layers, and the kinds of networks today have hundreds of layers. Um, but the parameter space grows up exponentially because every neuron in one layer is connected to every neuron in the next layer. And so uh, how neural networks have suddenly been able to achieve such remarkable results are they're not as straightforward as the, the feedforward network I showed you earlier. Um, some tricks like the notion of a convolutional layer and residual skip connections um, allow you to reduce the parameter space and also exploit the properties of images. So in an image, um, <laughs> um, so, so, okay, and, and so, so really, to, 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 to kind of bring a bit more clarity here, um, we have pixels as input on the one side. Um, those get multiplied by weights, the lines from the one layer to the next layer to produce values in the second layer. That gets multiplied by weights all the way to the end. Uh, these are trained with gradient descent so that you learn the weights so that the inputs map to the outputs on your training data and you use a held out sample to do cross-validation so that the network can learn these weights. Now, uh, what's really going on is the, the pixels on the input layer are being multiplied by these weights to cause like transformations in the first layer. Then those transformations are sort of like features that have been extracted by the network. Uh, those are then multiplied by weights to get to the second layer, third layer, all the way to the final probability distribution at the end. Um, and so these convolutional operations are really just like little filters being applied to the image to uh, derive like feature representations. And so if you look at what some of these convolutional features look like, if you visualize what those images look like reconstructed from the first layer of the neural network, you'll notice that uh, those map, th th those uh, convolutional layers learn sort of like edge detectors and color gradients. If you look at the, the sort of second layer, uh, they then are combining those sort of like edges into corners and, and circles and, and color gradients, uh, which then get combined deeper into parts of objects and being able to recognize entire objects. Um, and so really all it's doing is this is sort of hierarchical feature detector, but where you're not hand coding the features, the features are learned in the process of training the network. Now, uh, a standard convolutional neural network to do image classification, and there's loads of great learning materials online, and I'd love to nerd out about this, so please come and talk to me if you want to go into more details about it. Um, but a standard convolutional neural network just takes an image as input. And so to do an object detection model, what you have to do is sort of slide a window over the image of various size rectangles and then classify whether the content of that rectangle is this object. And when there's a very high probability that that's the object around that one rectangle, that is where you know there is some object uh, in the image. Um, there's, again, more nuance to that, and, and uh, finding these boxes that you slide over is a difficult computational problem, but that's the sort of intuition. 
Um, and so the model does pretty well on obvious cases, but it's definitely far from perfect. And it misses sometimes small bits of damage, it mistakes dirt for damage, and, and mistakes things like glare for damage too. And so the process that we've brought together, as, as Adra mentioned, is um, the, in, in the app that inspectors use, they can, uh, they're presented the results of the model and they can say that's correct or that's incorrect or tap and say the model missed this damage. Um, now, uh, in a, a sort of like insurance application case where a person is taking a photo of some damage on a car, you could ask them to verify the damage or alternatively, you have an image that goes into this model. Uh, that probability distribution output as a result of running this object detection model can be used as a confidence. Uh, if the model is sufficiently confident, we can just return the result. If the model is not sufficiently confident, we can then show a person in a call center to then sort of return the result in real time um, and then use that label to update the model so the model improves over time. So the results that we've been getting on this inspection app have been improving significantly as we've been collecting more data and most importantly good data. Um, and this active learning loop is, is really interesting because you really can't trust the output of the model all the time, but you can use properties of the model to then decide when to have humans in the loop uh, and, and use this uh, continuous machine learning process. So yes, so what is important about this entire process and the, thing, the feedback loop about low confidence images that gets shown to humans to then automatically update the image as you go along is that you want to have a system where man and machine works together. So in many cases, a machine is better than a man. But when you combine the two, you actually have a much better output. So we're not looking to replace humans, we're looking to augment humans. And have the ability that if you take the picture, the automatic task that needs to be, that can be done immediately, gets done by the computer immediately. The parts that you're low confidence about gets shown to a call center agent, and he only has to focus on the area that a computer said he's uncertain about. And then the human says yes or no, and that flows back into the results. And that allows you to have an insurance process that now combines both man and machine. So an example of Allstate, which is an American-based insurance company, they've already laid off all their, or lots of their employees um, at their drive and assessment centers. And what they've done, they've asked the clients to take pictures and send it to the call centers. But that doesn't take away the humans at all and doesn't use AI. You're just sending the pictures to people to look at it on a screen. That still takes 24 hours, say, and you still have to employ all these people to do the estimation. So what has now been done is... Alibaba has actually, um, just recently, this is a new article, is they've developed a tool that can do assessments that a normal team of claims assessors for 12 uh, cases takes six minutes, 45, 48 seconds to assess the damage on those claims. The machine, the Alibaba computer machine, uh, only took six seconds. And it gave the same accuracy and the same conclusions that has been done by the computer. So that allows you to do two steps. One is you reduce your call center agency, the amount of people you need to employ. So the computer does the bulk of the work uh, while you only have humans to make certain it's 100% accuracy. But you have the customer satisfaction viewpoint where results are shown instantaneously to the person. They don't know which part is done by the computer and which part is done by the man, but they've got the experience of augmented reality insurance. So that's resulting in faster claim settlements, 
more accurate appraisals, because you combine the two, and more importantly, less fraud. Because firstly, you've got a before and after picture that's, that's captured and annotated. You have uh, less humans in the processes, less humans that can commit to fraud. And by using geotagging of images, you can place where the actual images were taken to make certain it makes sense compared to the claim. Okay, so, so um, Will's thing is quite interesting to consider how you can apply some of these ideas in the home insurance case. Now, you know, most common home insurance claims include damage of the type that's not too dissimilar from damage on a car. So water damage, geysers, fires, storm damage, where you can apply similar kinds of models uh, to do sort of like damage estimations and predictions and with similar kind of human in the loop systems to make sure that you can provide a, a level of accuracy where you don't have to trust the model is always perfect, but combine man and machine to produce best outcomes. Um, on household contents, uh, so, so sometimes claim statistics indicate that one out of three homes in South Africa are underinsured by 30%. And so um, part of that is when you apply for household contents insurance, uh, you just sort of like drag a slider and guess the value of the household contents. Uh, we think it would also be great to, to use these kinds of models to enable a person to walk through their house and capture an actual inventory of their household contents. They can you know, be prompted to add receipts or actual values uh, to list the actual household contents. So. So thank you very much. What we try to show is that the technology that's needed to have augmented experience for your customer, in any case, whether it's insurance, household, car, is already available. The underlying technology is there and the methods has been developed. Um, it's now, I just feel, as is actually, you need to take the leap of faith to apply this to a real world situation and give that experience to the customers. Thank you very much for listening. We're here for questions. Cool, thank you. Cool, I'm opening the floor for questions for Alex and Audrey. Thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. Uh, we've all been there, guys, so don't stress about it. Uh, technology is, is a beast to tame, and that's going to require some human effort. Um, so any questions, just catch the eye of the roving mic. Um, I'm just, uh, just looking at the stream as well. Uh, yeah, lots of interesting Posts, good sign, Imran, Stefan, Karaba, John, Joanna, thanks for posting. And um, yeah, I think just while we're waiting, um, anyone, am I missing anyone yet? Just shout, here's one, thank you, sir. Hi, guys, Stefan here. Um, so, good presentation, appreciate that. Um, maybe a, a couple of comments. One is on the, the crowdsourcing, love the idea of that active learning and the human contribution. Um, maybe check out what Brandsai is doing in that space with their opinion mining, and, and uh, that's kind of a nice local example of also how they uh, operate more in an uh, NLP space. Um, and then maybe in the, in the home insurance side, and I guess it could have other applications as well, I've wondered if you've thought about uh, kind of the IoT angle into the insurance space, so connected devices, so how are you measuring, so apart from just photos and computer vision, using devices to, to kind of uh, identify when that geyser is gonna blow or um, there's gonna be electrical fire because the consumption is spiking or whatever, um, maybe that's an interesting angle to explore as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree. Super interesting uh, additional source of data to solve those kinds of problems. We haven't done any work on that uh, personally, but yeah, very interesting. I, th I think also the penetration of IT devices in South Africa is quite low, so I think that's definitely the future. 
Um, we'll get there. But it, uh, just to add on that, I think it is a great service that can be added to your client. So you can, if you know about electricity spikes, or you can ask the person to take photos of your geezer if they're uncertain about it and make predictions for them to give an advice on a real-time basis because the model can make predictions. So you have that continuous interaction with your client um, using these sort of models or the IoT. Thanks, Stefan. So I've got another uh, killer idea for you guys. Um, can you please, once this technology is working, sell it to the, or license it to the rental car companies? Because if I have to climb off another flight at eight o'clock in the evening and this one guy insists on going around manually pointing to scratches that I certainly can't see, um, <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, we've, we've put a lot of thought into that and been speaking to some of them. Um, and, 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 you know, also the, the output of this condition, like visual inspection process, is a sort of JSON object representation of the condition of the car. And so if you do that inspection today and you do it in two days, we can automatically surface any damage that's new. And you have this visual audit trail to make sure that you're not getting hustled. Excellent. I hope I didn't give away your business plan. <laughs> um, um, that actual use case is actually sort of the application that we're doing for, uh, for Mercedes-Benz. So um, they have uh, their own um, uh, dealers and they need to do inspection before and after. So the automatic next step is to roll it out to all rental companies. Um, and that is also the idea, I mean, there are lots of insurers who are currently asking you to take pictures, but not doing anything with the pictures. It's the same, as I said, with the Allstate uh, problem, is that they're not doing anything immediately. It takes up to 24 hours to get results. So what would be much better is taking the pictures of your car and having things identified when you apply for insurance. And at that point, the, you and the insurer has both agreement on what the damage is. It's not something that suddenly catches you unaware at claim stage. The, the boxes get jammed, it got drawn onto it, everybody agrees to it, and then you know any new damage, like you said, if you see the difference, uh, will be paid out. Cool, thanks for that. Um, any questions from the floor yet? Cool, can uh, John? You're ready. Okay, so while, while John is uh, getting the mic, um, would you guys mind sharing just your, your basic stack for the geeks out there? So, I mean, I'm going to guess Python, OpenCV, am I on, on it so far? Uh, definitely, yep, keep yeah. going, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as far as uh, what I could see from your presentation. Yeah, so, so we actually use an ensemble of various deep neural network and, and object detection models, so some PyTorch, some TensorFlow, um, TensorFlow implementation, raw TensorFlow and, and a model implemented in Keras on top of TensorFlow. Um, and actual productionizing is all running in Docker containers in uh, Google Compute Platform. Thanks for that. Okay. Um, there's a need for a mic just in front here, guys. Thank you. Just behind you, John. So maybe share your views on um, to the deep neural learning. Obviously, the humans that you put in the call center have gone through similar process over millions of years to identify, uh, you know, and, and, and create nodes and, and connections. And so the deep neural learning will eventually become as good as, as, as the humans, right? Um, at, at identifying certain objects because it, there's just experiential learning about what things look like and how it works. So share your views on ultimately, um, 
as humans are not required to do these things anymore, um, and all that data now sits in, this, in, in the machines, how, how do you think the world will change? It's a very deep question. Um, well, I, I'm skeptical that we're as close as the hype suggests to fully replacing humans for a lot of these tasks. Um, you know, a model will make mistakes that a two-year-old wouldn't make. Like, uh, you know, you, uh, you can have an image that is very clearly a cat and a, a model can be mistaken to thinking that's a kettle and, you know, a very young person wouldn't make that kind of mistake. Um, I think the models will eventually get a lot better and to the point where they're superhuman for a lot of those kinds of more difficult tasks. They're already superhuman for a lot of tasks. Um, actually, image classification models are better than humans, but some of the mistakes that they make are, you know, obviously uh, mistakes and using that property of the confidence of the models then have humans verify when the models aren't confident I think is really interesting but that'll just update the models so they get better and better over time as for what people are going to be doing when models are doing all of the work um, I don't know it's not hopefully we can spend on more creative endeavors than coding models and um, making boxes around images so yeah. <laughs> we have much better use of the human potential Cool, thanks for that. Um, any other questions? Technical or philosophical? Yeah, I'm seeing one hand there, thank you. So just maybe by show of hands, before the gentleman asks his question, do you know what a capture is in the audience? You guys know? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if you're aware, that's, that's when on the website where they ask you, prove that you're a human. And if you've seen it recently, you would have seen things like identify the street signs. You know, which of these pictures contain cars? Uh, you know, some of the earlier ones was around um, type the numbers, you know, that you see in the picture. So that's actually an application of the mechanical Turk concept. You know, all those images and the answers to that are actually being used to feed these neural networks, to train them. Um, so, you know, just by us requesting access to a website proving we're human, we're actually feeding this beast. So um, just the interesting bit of trivia for you. Uh, we're actually giving away all our secrets voluntarily and collectively. Thank you, sir. Your question. Hi. Um, good morning. Uh, it's Matthew Britton from Sunlum. Um, my question's around fraud, sort of in an augmented reality sense. I mean, if everything goes digital, what stops someone from just holding a photo in front of the camera and taking that, oh, there's this huge damage and, and, and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, very good question. In fact, um, Uber had a similar issue where drivers were required to do a sort of selfie to sign on as a driver and they just hold up a printout of a photo of the guy. You know? um, so the, the model and some of the mistakes that the model makes is a mistake that you would make as a human looking at a photo of this damage. But as a human standing in front of the car, you would take a, a step to the side or move your head a little bit and you'll see a reflection where you can then see the dent, where you don't see the dent straight on, but you can see it if you look at it from different angles. So the direction we're going with this is making the inspection be a sort of like video scan of the car as opposed to single photos. And faking an entire video like that is much more difficult. Uh, you can also use like 
various cryptographic techniques to like digitally watermark the images. And, and that can be done through an app as opposed to someone just taking a photo and uploading it to some system. So you can ensure the authenticity of the photo and you can also geocode and, and use various metadata on the image to ensure that it's not fraudulent. Um, but yeah, I think video is a lot harder to fake. Although if you've seen some of the deep fake stuff, uh, that may not be the case for too much longer. Cool, thanks for that. Louis, why don't you join us up here? I was just thinking about your mechanical Turk called Lauren that was manipulating the, the presentation there behind the scenes. So, well done, sir. <laughs> okay, cool. We've got a full panel. Uh, we've got an audience engaged. Your questions, please. Our answers. Um, Paul Trans here, and I'm involved with... Um, one of the short-term insurance companies on the board. One of the things that have um, that challenged me is the slightly more complicated insurance lines, uh, commercial, um, where professional underwriters are in scarce supply. And I made a supposition once upon a time that that these guys, even though they think they, they their decisions are made from years of experience, they've actually got a, a, some sort of algorithm embedded in their brain. And I said. Couldn't we use artificial intelligence to learn these algorithms and then you know, eventually replace them with you know, the kind of concept you're talking about? Uh, have you done any work thinking around that side of artificial intelligence? Um, so, uh, no. So we ha I mean, all of this is creating um, enough data for the, the machine to learn on. So... It, it, that application can definitely be done. It will simply be involve having these underwriters go through multiple cases and explain how they got to the results and what the results are. So it is a process similar to the, the car damage that we had, is that we need to have outputs linked to each of the cases. And if you create a sufficient database and have um, like this expert person going through a million cases and recording all his outputs, then that is something that can be fed into a model and then once that's done once, um, it can replace the person. So um, it will take some effort, but these sort of things can be done. Yeah, um, I don't have experience in the, in, the, in the PNC world or the non-life world. I do have experience in doing exactly that in the, in the life world. Um, going through your database, looking at your life underwriter decisions, and looking at, and if you have the data, the, the data that they looked at captured in a digitized format, which not, not a lot of people do at this stage, unfortunately. Um, but if you have your data digitized in terms of what the application what the application looked like digitally, you know, which boxes did they tick, tick on the app form, which medical data did they provide, you can get very far in terms of, and also if you augment that with other sources of data, say you're a bank or you're a you have um, heart monitor data, you can augment all that data and look at the decisions your existing underwriters have been making and you can model that. And you can model it with a reason, reasonable degree of accuracy. And then what you do, and we've done this in, 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 in other markets as well, is, is model that outcome and then say, well, if my model is scoring, you know, similar to what Audrey and them have done, is if my model is scoring more than 80% certain or more than a certain level of certainty, you can then um, make that person bypass the long and tedious manual underwriting process and go straight to a decision instantaneously if, in, in some cases. And, and, that, and, that, and what's nice about that, you can actually set the real level of risk for that as well. So you can determine how much risk you're willing to take with that, with that automation process, trading off the, 
potential loss of business through the long, tedious underwriting process versus the risk of making an incorrect decision and, and, and play with that trade-off to, to a degree that you're happy. Um, but to be clear, if you have that data, we'd love to work on that problem. <laughs> cool. So um, I did a talk, it was about 18 months ago, at one of the wider field sessionals, and maybe to your question as well around, uh, it was a paper um, around the job security of, uh, you know, they rated, scored about 8,000 jobs and how susceptible they might be uh, in, in terms of replacement uh, around these kind of technologies. And, um, you know, I obviously was focused on the insurance type of jobs, uh, including my own as an actuary. So um, the actuarial one uh, was pretty low, if, if memory serves, around 27% of the, the content of your typical job, and that was in the short-term kind of space, just judging by the description, uh, can be replaced ultimately by, uh, you know, machines. Um, but for underwriters, uh, the chance of their job as defined currently being replaced was 98%. So I think that's a testimony to say that you know a lot of what an underwriter do or does is um, is actually repetitive, and it's of that type where consistency actually becomes very very important. And you know machine learning, the outcomes of these models, um, obviously you've got to be uh, also aware of what they pick up on to make sure that it doesn't inadvertently discriminate. But it is, uh, it's got a consistency to it, which, which is one element of, of fairness uh, for policyholders and insurance companies alike. So thanks for that question. Guys, we've got about five minutes left, maybe four minutes if you want to leave early. So if there's any final comments or questions, uh, now's the time. Otherwise, put it on the stream. Is there one more? Yeah, there, but watch it. Um, may I'll just say one thing in response to the, the underwriter thing uh, and to add on to your earlier comments about capture. Um, I think a lot of those kinds of tasks can be done without too much training. I mean, sure, they develop expertise over a long period of time, um, but it, it's sort of like out there idea, but along the lines of not being able to work on Mechanical Turk as a South African. And the capture case, if you can pose those kinds of tasks as, as simple tasks, you may not have enough data to train a model, but you could you know, enable people in South Africa who need work to do those kinds of labeling tasks on their phone. And if you use consensus mechanisms and show them tasks where you know the answer, you can rate their score and have like 10 people give the answer um, or, or you know, do, do that kind of thing to, to crowdsource those kinds of problems and uh, Uberize some of those assessment processes. Absolutely. And the benefit also of that is the flexibility of your workforce. Similar to like Uber, the amount of workers can expand and contract depending on how much work you have. So where currently you have a call center and you just say uh, have 500 people to um, handle the morning afternoon call, call volume and those people do nothing in the middle of the day, you can now by Uberizing it flex your workforce so that you always have enough people for the task um, instead of catering for the peak, and that will reduce your call center and this manual intervention process, the cost of that significantly. Thanks for that. Don't get me started on the gig economy. I can chat about that all day. So um, uh, if you could please, uh, have you got a mic? Please put your uh, question. Yeah, thank you. Um, just on the, the point you read, um, raised about 98% uh, of underwriters potentially being uh, replaced in the near future, um, but at the same time you mentioned that the underwriters would be needed to train the model um, you know, before it could potentially take over. Uh, two points on that. How do you motivate 
the underwriters to, to train the model that's effectively going to replace them. And secondly, um, with a statistic like that, how do you, in the interim, you still need people to move into the underwriting space, just using underwriting as an example. How do you motivate people to um, study and uh, or move towards being an underwriter when at the same time you're saying in the next couple of years, potentially the field is going to be um, made obsolete? Um, so just yeah, your thoughts on that. I think, um, I think the, the, the unfortunate thing for the underwriters is that they've already done the work. Um, it's, not, it's not an option. They're already doing that work day to day and that data is already being captured. So, you know, for, not necessarily for that purpose right now, but if you go to most insurance companies, you can pull this kind of data from their systems and, and start looking at this problem without, without the permission of the underwriters themselves. Um, having said that, I think underwriters, have, underwriters like actuaries, like I said in my talk, actuaries will need to think about how they skill themselves going forward. I think we would need to focus much more on, on data analytics and algorithmic thinking in our, in our approaches um, to make sure we have the right skills to embrace this future. Obviously, for, for underwriters, it might be a bit more of a stretch, a bit more of a, a different kind of goal, but I think they need to think more about the science of their, of their profession and not the process. So think about how do you what is the factors that play a role? How can I build? Uh, how can I build rules for cases where there is no data? How can I, you know, this guy has an antique vintage car. You know, how can I underwrite that? That's not something you're going to learn by algorithm. You need to still apply those skills, but applying them very scientifically and objectively and in a rule-based manner, so that I can I can design the rule for a system like that automates if it's not being machine learned. I think thinking like that is is the way of future. So so thinking about automating yourself. Uh, and, and if you have that skill set, I think you're going to have the right skill set going forward. Yeah, I, I'd just like to add to that. I mean, this is something that I think we're going to be grappling with as society for years to come. Um, yeah, but it's it's not it's not as if it's not happening already. Um, you know, the things that we as consumers view as conveniences. Um, are exactly the outcome of these kind of processes. You know, the stuff that you can actually just take an image, submit a claim, get a decision within seconds. I mean, that's the application, and, but there are consequences, but it's not all negative, you know. So for me, the, folk, the, the whole uh, drive here is, I mean, three thoughts to leave you with. The one is the 80-20 principle that as actuaries we so easily adopt because we actually know it's an application of the Pareto distribution. Um, but that's, that's part of it. Uh, well, you didn't know that, Matt? <laughs> uh, with the Pareto principle, eh? So, um, <laughs> so basically, um, we, in order to innovate, in order to advance technologically, okay, we need to push down the repetitive tasks, the tasks that can be automated. Human beings have been doing that for years. That is going to touch some existing jobs. It happened uh, with the printing press. It happened with the electronic loom, and it's, gonna, it's happening in our lifetime. I think the opportunity that is here, and that's why we need to keep uh, redefining ourselves as humans before machines do it for us, is to really adopt these technologies and then focus on that which makes us as humans uh, unique. So I like that example that Louis gave. I was thinking about the paintings as well. You know, get someone to survey the home that's not a, a, a physical underwriter. Then identify that there are, say, five paintings in the house. 
go have a machine maybe take a, a view to which ones those are copies, you know, of famous works, and then sending the human specifically to that house to specifically evaluate those paintings. Which, which, uh, the, so that's an application. 80% of the grind work is being done automatically. That last 20%, which allows humans to apply their expertise, their knowledge, and years of niche and specialized experience. Um, I think that's how it's going to play out. So focus, and then really to say, you know, we are the creators of these processes. We are the creators of these machines, and let machines continue to serve us as humans. So it's more of a play around augmentation than it is around replacing. I mean, we, we want the convenience. We want to make our jobs easier by having uh, computers do the mundane and the, the average so we can focus on the exceptional.